My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. As per usual, I am your host, Jamie Keach, and today we sat down with a gentleman named Willem Middelkoop. He is an extremely interesting person. Um, he is a fund manager based out of Holland, um, Amsterdam to be exact, that I had the opportunity to meet up with during PDAC the other week. So the PDAC is the Prospectors and Developers Conference. It is in Toronto in March every year, and it is the biggest and baddest mining show in the world. There are hundreds of companies. There are something like 30,000 people there, all the bankers and geologists and entrepreneurs and investors, etc., 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 show their face, and everyone's looking for the best deals and for financing and and everything else you would associate with a mining show. But prior to this show, Willem uh, saw a video that we recorded through Cambridge House that was put online. It was called How You Got Screwed in 2018, where we talk about some of the scams and uh, general scumbaggery that goes on in the mining sector. And he'd watched that online on YouTube. He reached out to me. He said, I liked your talk. I would love to meet you during PDAC. So we had dinner at a very nice Japanese restaurant downtown and ended up chatting for several hours about the sector, about investing, and about all the things that go wrong and the few things that go right. And after that conversation, I decided the world needed to hear uh, Willem talk. He has a lot of great ideas uh, he's an incredibly interesting person with a really, really unique background. So Willem is the founder and manager of the Commodity Discovery Fund. It is a fund that is essentially focused purely on exploration discoveries. That means he's looking for the next big win in the mining space. And he has a significant amount of capital under management. He has been doing this for a very long time now, and he's had some very big wins. Um, but his background is extremely unique. So he was originally a photojournalist in Amsterdam. He got interested in finance. He got interested in investing, uh, initially in property. Uh, that eventually led him into the gold and precious metal space, and he became a financial journalist and he's wrote, written several books, eight to be exact, two of which have been published in English. Um, they've been bestsellers in the Netherlands. And through all of this, he eventually came uh, to deepen his understanding of the financial markets, deepen his belief in precious metals and mining and mineral discovery, and start the Commodities Discovery Fund, which has been a very, very interesting run. So we talk about how he looks for opportunities, how he allocates capital, what he thinks is going on in the mining sector, what's going on in the world today. It was 
a really great opportunity for me to sit down with Willem twice in the, in the, in the last week and discuss, you know, where the next big opportunities are and where we should be looking. And I learned a lot, and I think that listeners will learn a lot too. This is an ideal episode for any investors at home who are looking to take a slightly more sophisticated or perhaps nuanced approach on their mining and particularly discoveries investing. And we really get um, into detail here about exactly how Willem finds these opportunities and how he takes advantage of them uh, quickly. So without further ado, let me please introduce Willem Middelkump from the Commodity Discovery Fund. Willem, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. So we are sitting here. Uh, it is the final day of the PDAC, the Prospectors and Developers Association Conference in Toronto, Ontario, and we're in the Royal York Hotel. Um, you and I met just a couple nights ago for dinner, uh, just down the street from here, and that was when you reached out to me after after seeing some of the presentations we did uh, to chat and talk about discoveries and what's going on in the resource space and and the cheating in the markets and the cheating <laughs> in the markets and the scams and what yeah. investors need to be watching out for because uh, that, that's the reason. I reached out to you. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that's a big focus of what we're doing at Resource Insider is trying to help people avoid getting into the all too common situation of being screwed over by a a less than ethical management team or a, an promoters. unideal structure <laughs> and promoters. Yeah. Uh, and we had such a good conversation that uh, you know we decided this should probably be a podcast. And and there's a lot of people that I think could learn from what we were talking about and and what you are doing. So to start off, uh, can you tell us who you are and, and what you do from the 30,000-foot view? Yeah, I'm a Dutch fund manager. Um, I founded the Commodity Discovery Fund in 2008. Um, we're the only resource funds in the Netherlands. And we have over 700 high net worth investors, mainly Dutch, some Asian people. Um, but this is like my second career because I've been a journalist for a very long time. Actually, since 1980, I've been working as a journalist, photojournalist. I worked for Reuters. Um, I worked for Dutch TV as a market commentator between 2001 and 2008. Um, was live on TV from the stock exchange a few thousand times. Um, and I'm, I've always been a private investor as well. I was an investor in real estate in Amsterdam in the um, 1990s. Um, bought apartments and uh, rent them out to expats. It was a totally new market at that time in Amsterdam. Uh, made some money there. Um, did it all on mortgage, so I didn't put any money in myself. So in the middle of the 1990s, I, uh, had, a f I had lent a few million euros uh, with banks and then I decided that I was highly leveraged, so I needed to study monetary cycle, um, monetary history. And I read quite, a, quite some books on, the, on these topics uh, late uh, 1990s. And then I started to become worried about the buildup of debts in the financial system. Um, I started to 
write about the financial system and about the risks of um, investing and being in the in, in the markets. And um, well, um, then I start to discover that gold could be a nice hedge. And I'm a very early investor in gold and silver um, in in the previous cycle, so the early 2000s. Bought my first physical silver in 2002. Bought my first mining shares in 2002, 2003. Took profit in real estate, and then discovered the power of uh, discoveries. So smaller companies making a discovery can change uh, can change a lot. And I decided to totally focus on what I call discovery investing since 2005, 2006, and that's uh, why I built the fund around 2007. So. During the course of this conversation, I'd really like to dig into uh, your rather unusual career trajectory, uh, how you went from photojournalist to author to uh, investor, television personality, and now fund manager. But you know, I think uh, for the sake of our listeners, the Commodities Discovery Fund is obviously focused on investing in mining discoveries. Why, you know, there's a lot of different phases in the mining life cycle. There's different uh, value-add phases. Uh, different investors and different funds have different focus. Why is it that you've chosen to focus on what many will view as sort of the tip of the spear, the uh, the highest risk area in the space, um, but also clearly, you know, the, the area for biggest return? What is it that attracted you to that, and how do you make decisions in that sector or in that corner of the sector? I was quite young when I started to invest in the um, resource markets. So I'm 56 now and 15 years ago I was in my, in my early 40s. So I always liked the high risk, high reward uh, area. Um, and when I started to invest in gold and silver um, shares, mining shares, um, I, I, I had one experience which uh, changed my, my view. And um, Actually, at the start of the bull market in the early 2000s, when I started to invest, 2001, 2002, 2003, everything went up. All shares went up. You know, it was a typical first stage of a bull market. And then we got a first severe correction in around 2004. And I remember I had 30 positions in my portfolio, all listed uh, companies um, working in the uh, precious metal space and uh, out of these 30 27 declined uh, by 50 percent on <laughs> average <laughs> yeah the typical correction yeah <laughs> uh, but i had three which did um, much better and when i started to study the reason why these three were much uh, better um, i learned that they all did a well a an important discovery. Uh, they were all developing an important discovery uh, during that period. You could um, one could compare it nowadays with w what happened to Kirkland Lake Gold with their uh, discovery in Australia. Yep. So then I decided to really study um, the effect and the mechanisms of discoveries in the natural resource market and then it was then that i learned because in, in in europe we don't have exploration companies which are listed on the stock exchange 
So this was a totally new world for me. So then I learned that there were over 2,000 um, listed exploration companies, um, m mainly based in Vancouver, and that this was an industry of its own. And I really spent quite some time studying um, that, that part of the market. And actually, <laughs> since then, and it's f it has been over 10 years now, I'm still studying this market every day. So I think it's worth um, f defining for listeners what a discovery is. So, you know, is that getting into a company that already has a resource and an expansion of that resource, or is that a, a pure grassroots discovery? Uh, a geologist has a thesis, they go out, uh, you know, by the, uh, by the drill bit, they go out and they actually make that discovery and through other series of things. What, what, what exact stage are you guys looking at? When I started this research around 2004, 2005, I learned that you could have um, producers making a discovery like Kirkland Lake with Vosterville. And that really helped them to um, send their shares up by 30 or 50 percent. But when a similar discovery was made by an exploration company, the shares shot up by 300, 400%. So that's where I learned to concentrate on the smaller companies, the exploration companies, working on grassroots discoveries. And um, I had some uh, beginner's luck because in 2006, I felt, um, uh, well, mature enough in discovery investing to start a small newsletter. Uh, tipping investors on great discovery holes and drill holes and uh, exploration companies. And at that time, I tipped um, one particular company. It was very small, only 30 million shares outstanding. They were exploring in Ecuador um, in an area near Peru. Uh, that area had always been closed because of the military uh, 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 implications of, of, of that part of uh, Ecuador. And it was run by two... Um, uh, geologist and uh, one was Keith Barron and the other one was Patrick Anderson and people who know this uh, industry they know these names because these were the founders of uh, Aurelian Resources so I tipped the company I bought 10,000 shares myself for 30 cents and uh, the beginner's luck um, brought me a wonderful discovery hole six weeks later and then the shares jumped from thirty cents to forty-three dollars within a year. <laughs> <laughs> and so and now, then you got hooked after that. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I, s I see the same mechanism now with the crypto investors. Mm -hmm. You know, they were lucky once, and now they think they're smart. <laughs> um, I had the same. So after this experience, my ten thousand shares became um, quite valuable. And I thought I uh, I could understand this business very well. <laughs> I started to uh, be on the hunt for the next um, Aurelian resources. And, well, um, I learned over time that not every discovery hill is, a, is the start of a world-class discovery. So if you ask me what's, what's our, what's our um, criteria, uh, we always... Um, are, on, are on, on the hunt for the, the world-class discovery. So that's a gold discovery of over 3 million ounce, a silver discovery over 100 million ounce, which aren't there anymore, and it could be a zinc or a copper or a, a nickel discovery. So um, it, it, it's very tough, 
you have to work very hard. You have to study the press releases every day. But I'm, I'm still addicted to it. I love it. And we had 51 buyouts in the last 10 years. All companies, exploration companies, which we bought very early on and were taken out by majors in need of reserves. I think, you know, this is an interesting part of this conversation because you're not an engineer, you're not a geologist, you don't come from a technical mining background, yet you've been able to far and beyond beat the average in choosing high potential projects led by good teams that many of which have gotten bought out and many of which have created great returns. How do you go about doing that? Now, I know, you know, when you started off, it was just you. Uh, now you've got a small team uh, at the fund. I know you work with some consultants who are technical people, but you know, how does, and I think this is really valuable for listeners at home because most of the people listening to this are going to be retail investors who are intensely interested in the mining industry. And I think there's a lot to be learned here for how someone who doesn't come from that traditional technical background can make good decisions in this sector. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's an important question. And with all the team and all the assistance we have, I'm um, not to be, uh, uh, not to brag, but I'm still the guy who's doing the discoveries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm still well. I'm not doing the discoveries the geologists do, but I'm still finding the new discoveries. And I think that has to do with my character. Um, I I like to be fast in everything I do, <laughs> even the way I drive. And I was a <laughs> I was a photojournalist when I was young, and I was the guy you know rushing to the scene at 3 a.m. and being the first there when the Boeing 747 crashed in Amsterdam in the 1990s. Al Boeing. Mm -hmm. um, I was there within 15 minutes. So that story of my life is. I always want to scan markets or news. If you follow my Twitter feed, you see the same. And I have this urge to scan um, something complex and find the nugget inside. And that's what I love doing. As a kid, I love to go fishing. It's the same, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's a p uh, some is luck. And still the same with discovery investing. You need to be lucky, but you can create your own luck. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because can you br help me understand, help break it down, sort of what the system is that you use uh, in terms of getting that news flow and information flow so that you can see it you know, as quickly as possible and then have the tools to react? It's the same like in my days as a photojournalist. People always ask me, how can it be that you're the first on the scene? And I always told people, everybody can do this. You just buy a police scanner, you listen to the police radio, and you just go out yeah. and be the first. And the same applies for this industry. Because these are all listed companies, they need to put out a press release. Mm -hmm. And when you wake up <laughs> early enough, um, you can see the press releases, you know, it's the internet era, it's all out there, it's all for free, and you just try to understand what the press release is all about, and you don't need to be a geologist. But once you have learned that finding 
five grams of gold over 200 meter is a great discovery hole you know <laughs> that's the only thing you need to need to know to be able to 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 see the importance of a great discovery hole one example i saw a press release a few months ago coming from australia greatland gold reported 250 grams or 250 meters of five grams of gold and 0.6 percent copper well then all my <laughs> alarm bells go off and I, I start to study that company and that project right away so in the office i always tell our people you know we drop everything we're working on and we start to study it because after a wonderful discovery hole i'm studying it for 24 hours um, full time I, I i go back to see the presentations yeah. i go back to the former press release I, I i study the management team who are they and then you can have a wealth of um well, let's call it in insider knowledge, but which is which is not illegal. You know, it's all from from open sources. Yep. And within twenty four hours, you can have a real strong idea about this project. And sometimes we're wrong. You know, Camino came uh, with a very nice discovery hole in a copper project in uh, in in, in, um, in the Andes. And, uh, well, sometimes the discovery hole is the best hole ever, and they never are able to, uh, to, to, to drill anything like that. But sometimes you're right, and when you're right, and you're right very early on, you can make a lot of money. So do you have a time frame you typically try to make a decision on whether you'll be taking a position on or not in? Is it instantly? The first 24 hours are you aiming to buy stock? or It, it has happened that... Um, I become aware of the news just 30 seconds before the market opens. And when I think it's good enough, we buy it right away because you can always sell it after you studied it. Mm -hmm. But when it's a real good breaking discovery, the first few minutes, even the few first few seconds, the market opens, that's the only time you can still buy the, sh buy the, ch the shares f uh, cheap. And there's one guy, I have a huge respect for him. Um, actually, I was supposed to have lunch with him today. It's Warren Irvin of Rousseau Asset Management. Yeah, of course. And I consider him the only other real full-time discovery investor. Um, of course, there are other people like Greg Rule and um, uh, other people with Sprott who are looking for the next big discovery. But I know he is totally dedicated in finding the next world-class discovery. And if you study his interviews, he once said, uh, the, the only mistake you can make after a well wonderful discovery hall has been published is to wait to buy it at that time. Because if you don't buy it directly, you will always be too late because it will run and run and run. So are the majority um, of the investments that you make based on you know, publicly released information, discoveries that you see coming out, you know, are, are you, are most of the positions you're taking, you're buying on the market? Or do you have a component of your book that comes from earlier stage, uh, sort of private placement deals, um, yeah. backing management teams that have a good thesis, but have yet to make that discovery whole? 
yeah, we, we just decided to scale back the portion of our portfolio, which we call the pre-discovery. So these are companies, they have a good project. They, didn't, they haven't drilled the discovery hole yet, but it's a good team. They're in the right area and you hope they will, they will hit. And when shares are depressed like now, you can do a private placement and you get a warrant. You know, these are the lottery tickets. But actually, I, I, I hate to be, <laughs> um, to be a guy who is just uh, um, collecting all these lottery tickets because I, I prefer to act and to invest after the discovery hole has been made. And if, you're, if, if you react quick enough, there's enough money to be made uh, after the publication of the news. So um, actually we're scaling down the pre-discovery phase investments. You know, I'd like to ask you about position sizes. Um, how do you, how do you position, how do you, how much do you allocate to a given position in the discovery hole? This is the most um, this is the most difficult part. Yeah. This is something I struggle and with personally. As yeah. Well. I, I made a lot of mistakes even last year, last uh, 18 months. Because when you have a world-class discovery, a real good discovery, you have to go in very fast and you have to go all in. A great example, Great Bear Resources. Great Bear Resources, Red Lake, high-grade high uh, gold discovery recently, since the middle of last year. Um, after the real big hit was published, they did a financing right away. Actually, the stock ran uh, because of all the rumors. So it already jumped from 50 cents to 150 without uh, the press release being released. And once the press release uh, came to the market, uh, the stock was halted. And then they immediately they... Um, um, they published, they would do a private placement of, what, what was it, less than 10 million, in which uh, Rob McEwen took 7 million. Yeah. And, and we reached out to our brokers and, and the discovery group who was, um, who was responsible for this, uh, this private placement. And we've been in contact with them before. We, did, we spent a lot of money on the private placement of uh, uh, another company, um, they um, they are responsible for so they knew us but it was very hard for us to get a sizable position in that private placement so then the only thing you can do is to buy it out in the market so once the stock started trading i think it opened at 170 or 180 we tried to buy as many shares uh, under two dollars and then it jumped uh, um, quite 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 high over the two dollars and then in the weeks after that's all often the second chance you get that people tend to forget about <laughs> the big news especially now the markets are so depressed there are not that many uh, well educated investors who have deep pockets around so in two three weeks after the discovery has been made the talk the stock uh, tends to uh, come down 30 38 percent and great bear uh, went back all the way to 170, 175, and stayed there for a number of weeks, and that's where we built the big, the largest position. And now we own about three percent of Great Bear Resources, and it was very difficult to buy that many shares because this is a very illiquid stock mm -hmm. and it's very tightly held. 
So to answer your question, you should go in big right away, but you can make a mistake. And when you've made a mistake, you have to sell them for maybe half what you paid for. Um, but what I've learned in the, the 10, 15 years I've been in, in, in this um, type of investing and discovery investing, um, eventually um, there will be one big discovery and, and the profits you can make from one di big discovery can be life-changing. And that's, that's also what you, w what you can learn from Warren Irvin if you listen to his uh, interviews. You know, I mean, something I think about a lot and go back and forth on is, so I have friends who are never involved in more than, call it, two to five deals at any given time. Uh, they take a very active interest in the company. Uh, even if they're not on the board, they're, they, they take big positions. They are constantly engaged with management, and they're doing everything they can to help that succeed. I have other colleagues that <clears throat> take a wide range of positions, you know, maybe dozens, some of them. Uh, well over 100, and they're less actively involved in them, but they're spreading across a wider field. And do you guys have a strategy that you prefer to follow for that? Yeah, actually, we try to combine the two sides. Okay. <laughs> so we have over 100 positions, but they're not equal. Right. So we only have like f a few dozen positions who are the core of our portfolio. So there are 30, 40 stocks we really um, have a sizable position in. We're a 50 million um, Canadian uh, uh, fund. And there are only 30, 40 companies which have a sizable position. Let's say over $300,000. Uh, um, and some even are as large as three to four, five million uh, each. And then we have almost 100 companies in which we have, like I would say, a toe-in-the-water position. Mm. So I want, to, I want to have a position because if you don't have a position, you forget to follow them. Um, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. So th then it's, it's very hard for people, although most investors say they have a watch list, it's very difficult for people to study their watch list. It's hard to care if you don't have a little bit of skin in the game. Yeah, right. Because um, then there's always something more important to take your attention away. Yeah. So what I, what I do every day, besides scanning the press releases, which is the most important thing in our, in our job, the other important thing to do is to look at my list of positions and to see if any stock really stands out, if it jumps high. Or, or crashes down <laughs> because stocks which are crashing down um, can be great buying opportunities when there's an overreaction. Markets are always overreact on the yeah. upside, especially on the downside as well. So it's very important for me to scan a few hundred positions every day. And one of the best indicators of a world-class discovery is the run-up of shares before the news comes out because this is such a crooked market in Canada yep. <laughs> where regulators yep. are asleep at, at the wheel that a great discovery because of all the activity which is needed before the press release comes out, the drillers know it. 
the friends of the drillers know it. The people in the lab know it. The, some of the bankers know it because they're talking about doing a private placement right after the release. So there's always some leak. Mm-hmm. So when I see a press release of a discovery hole, I immediately go to the graph, and when the graph doesn't show a run-up of the share price in the f- days and weeks before th- the discovery has been published, I, I don't trust it. Really? And eight out of the ten times, this is the best indicator. So so if the drillers and their friends and their families and the cousins of the VPX is not, not buying that stock, you think... I love leaks, and not for from the illegal part because I I can't do any insider trading. We're very, in Holland, we're very uh, well regulated, and yep. I, and I, I have a public name, so um, I, I I I will never take the risk by of losing my fund because I made one insider right. trading deal, but because of all the gossip on co.ca. There's always somebody spreading the rumor, mm-hmm. and if uh, so, I love to 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 read the rumors on on co.ca, and when I um, share that knowledge with the information, um, the chart gives me, and the press release gives me, and that that's those three parts of pieces of information. If you combine them. That that that's a very strong that's very strong evidence. So let's talk about how you choose to cull your list of uh, investments. How do you? When do you choose? When is it time to kill an investment? Um, it's I mean, if you listen to a management team, the next discovery is always just one drill hole away. Uh, it's easy to get optimistic or overly optimistic. How do you guys decide to walk away? Walking away is always very difficult from a um, uh, psychological point of view. It's, it's very difficult because you have to admit you, you were wrong. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you wouldn't have bought it. Um, so you need to have a system in which, um, well, you almost, um, which, which always, almost makes you... <laughs> decide to sell it and one of the strong things to follow is trends as long as um, something is in an uptrend i want to keep it when the uptrend is broken the story still can be very good but once the uptrend is broken you know that's a very strong sign that others are selling so i try to follow that one Um, another important reason to sell is when you learn that something is uh, something doesn't add up. Warren Irvin has published a great story once how he learned that BRICS was a scam. And he sold it very early, um, very quite quite early. He sold his shares in BRICS and he even shorted them. So you always should be looking for what could go wrong. And, um, the, well... And if and, and if you find something is wrong, somebody's cheating, somebody has been lying, uh, you should sell. But I, I still make many mistakes. I still hold many shares for a um, f- for too long. 
And I mean, your business model is you are looking for the stocks for the companies that are going to get taken out at some point. Yeah. So when people ask us, what's your exit strategy? Then we will say we don't have one. Well, we just wait for the buyout to take over. And the great thing about takeovers is normally if you study the takeovers of um, companies, small companies which have done a discovery, the takeover price um, most often is the highest price which the stock has reached. But this was before we entered the severe correction we're in now, in the last few years. Right. Because now many takeovers are done at very depressed levels. But in normal markets, the takeover price will be the highest price. Aurelian Resources was taken out at a very high level just two months after Lehman crashed. And it was the depth of the financial crisis. So actually that's the part I like about discovery investing. You don't have to be, you don't have to decide every day when you will sell it. Of course, you always can take profits, but when it's a real strong world-class discovery, study the examples in history. Arequipa was bought out after eight drill holes. And look at the graph. It was just, you know, to the moon. <laughs> and then it was sold. If you look at Aurelian resources. And it's a pity, actually, that we have to invest now in markets that's, that are so depressed that the, the normal <laughs> laws of discovery investing are almost forgotten. But I'm quite sure that one day we'll see a massive discovery again. And it could be uh, Great Bear Resources. Great Bear Resources resembles the very first stage of the largest discoveries in the Red Lake District. And they only scratched the surface. It's a very tightly held stock. It has already jumped from f 50 cents to over $3. This is a stock that could run to $10, $20, $30 when they can prove the veins have continuity at depth. And you know these mesothermal um, uh, veins in Red Lake, they run down for, for kilometers on end. And until now, everything looks exactly the same as the first stage of the other Red Lake discoveries. And, and remember, in Red Lake districts, 50 million ounces have been found. 30 million ounces have been produced from the same kind of systems. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. And, you know, you mentioned you think we're, you know, soon there will be another big discovery. It's only a matter of time. And this, this kind of takes me to a, a theoretical question that I think about sometimes. Um, you know... I think the common logic is that you have a bull market, there's more money going into exploration, and you make discoveries. Part of me sometimes wonders if are bull markets in the exploration space, in the mining space, ever catalyzed by discoveries, in that when these big discoveries happen, be they the Voices Bay, uh, be it, you know, what Briex appeared to be, is it is that what gets people excited out of, about this space again and you start to see uh, capital flooding in? I go back and forth. I'm not sure. No. Um, I, I doubt that as well. Because if you look at the millennials and people all around you... Uh, you're people like me. Yeah. <laughs> you're at a younger age. You know, 
they are not watching the world of the resources to see if there's a big gold discovery in Borneo. And once there's a big gold discovery in Borneo, they won't switch from crypto to re to become resource investors. Um, of course, investors often act like herds, but the the mentality of the of the of the discoveries worldwide is now so um, is now so much directed to tech and crypto and and, and everything. <laughs> you you have the marijuana marijuana hype here, so it it will take an awful lot of uh, <laughs> good discoveries to really change the right. mood of the masses. Um, but I'm very positive for the next few decades for us as this uh, as commodity investors and discovery investors because in the next few decades we'll reach a totally new era and it's the era in which the shortages in the metals will really start to hit the market mm -hmm. and i'm i keep telling our audience and our investors that we're at the start of a generational boom market in commodities. Rick Rule talks about this a lot as well, actually, that he thinks we're coming up on what will be the first true exploration market where money needs to go into, you know, both greenfields and brownfields, exploration companies to replenish reserves that he's seen in, in decades in oh his yeah. career. And this will attract the hurts. <coughs> yeah. So commodity investing will become very popular in the next few decades. And not because one big discovery has been made, but people will start to understand that a lot of money will be made in the world of commodities because commodities are getting scarce we need much higher prices to have incentives to start new mines, to finance new mines. And it's this cycle uh, I, I, I want to benefit from. So I'm not waiting for the one big discovery will, which will change it all. Right. But, we'll, but we'll get one or two real big discoveries which will help to sell the whole story, whole commodity story. And if we look back to, to the not to recent history where one big discovery really um, brought a lot of attention to the world of commodities. There was a discovery by Voicey Bay in which Robert Friedland was highly involved. And, and don't forget, this was 1996 that um, Voicey Bay was sold for 4.6 billion mm -hmm. after a bidding war. In recent in, in today's money, you would be talking about $10 billion. And people always tend to think that um, an exploration company can only be sold for $1 billion. Yeah. Uh, that, that's like... <laughs> the ceiling, the, the ceiling. imaginary ceiling. And one day we'll have a discovery which will be sold for $10 billion or $15 billion or even $20 billion. And these are normal numbers in tech. Yeah, of course. Yeah. We're seeing that all the time <laughs> today, yeah. But but in our industry, people think it's it's not possible anymore. So imagine, you have this company, which is worth twenty million pre-discovery, and it will run 
to 10 billion, 15 billion, 20 billion, and it will happen within our lifetime. I'm 56, you're much younger, it will happen. Because since Voice Bay, I think we haven't seen a situation like that. And you know, what's going on in the market right now with these big mega mergers in the gold industry? So the Barrick and Rand Gold merger, the uh, Newmont's bid for Gold Corp, Barrick's bid for Newmont. I look at this as a precursor to a really exciting exploration market because clearly right now what's going on is these big companies are desperately trying to replenish their resources. And you know, given the depressed price of commodities right now, it's cheaper to buy a producing asset than it is to discover a new one. But that's going to change because, damn it, these things, they can only do so many mergers. There's only so many existing mines to buy before you got to find new ones. Jamie, you're a bright guy because this is <laughs> this is exactly what <laughs> this is the right analysis of today's market because there are no discoveries around and the majors are not able to find new stuff themselves. The only thing they can do is to buy each other and that's the first phase. And then they have to decide because after they they have become the largest in the industry. They have to think what to do next. And the only thing what they can do is to spend much more money on exploration. And look at palladium, you know. I want to touch on palladium. This is such a small market, but it's so important to understand today's world of commodities. We have four precious metals, gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. If we look at the, the number of outstanding future contracts on gold, silver, platinum, palladium, it's relative very high to the physical trading. Mm -hmm. If you compare that ratio, that number, to the outstanding futures for oil or uh, uh, um, orange juice or whatever commodity, the number of paper trading, the high level of paper trading, in the world of precious markets is very telling. So the selling of paper gold, paper silver, paper palladium, and paper platinum was always used in the last few years to control the market, to manage the price. But now we've reached a point with palladium that suppliers are not able to deliver enough palladium against the very low depressed prices. So if you study the annual report and the latest uh, press release by Norilsk Nickel from Russia, one of the leading producers of palladium, they're clearly stating that there's a structural deficit in the palladium markets, physical deficits, which can't be filled anymore um, by above-the-ground stocks, which has happened in the past, and that's why palladium is starting to run now. And we as commodity investors are so used that they will always bring down the price by selling enough paper <laughs> palladium, so selling enough futures on the markets. Mm -hmm. But in this case, if there's no physical palladium available to fill the market, the prices will run and run and run. And this could well be the start of similar moves in platinum, silver, and gold in the future. And I think it's important, yeah, so what you're saying is in terms of physical palladium, that means there isn't enough known physical palladium on the earth, on the planet right now to fill that supply gap. 
that in the current reserves of all the palladium mines in the world, we don't think we have enough to meet the demand over the coming years. No, but what will happen when palladium price um, doubles again, there will be a very big incentive to start to search the earth for undeveloped and undiscovered palladium deposits, like what we've seen in cobalt in the yes. last yep. few quarters. Half of all cobalt being used now comes from the DRC, from Congo. Um, after the sharp rise of the cobalt price 2016-2017, all kinds of companies have been starting a search to see if there are any deposits outside the Congo. And there's quite a bit of cobalt to be found in Australia. So when the price is high enough, you know, you will find more of the stuff. So we don't run out of palladium, we don't run out of oil, we don't run out of cobalt, but we need much higher prices to have an incentive. To and incentivize then, discovery. Yeah, and but then you still have a lag of five to ten years before that discovery will start to produce the physical metal. Right. And for an investor, that's a wonderful opportunity because in that five to ten year time frame, you can make a lot of sp speculative money. So I want to take a little step back now um, and talk about <coughs> the steps that led you into this sort of career. And we've talked about you being a photojournalist, but you're also a rather pro prolific writer, uh, particularly in the Netherlands, but also in at least two books that have been published in English. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the books you've published and, and your focus uh, as a journalist and as a writer? Um, yeah, I, I, I love to study systems. I always, um, when I was young, I, I liked to study um, meteorology, you know, the weather. I, I didn't go to university for it, but I, I always liked to read books and then to study how, what the mechanisms of a complex structure is. And I've done the same, um, like I told you in the start of our, uh, our talk. Uh, in the 1990s, I started to study financial system, and I, re it really, I really was shocked and surprised to learn how money is created out of thin air. And um, what, what I like to do, because I have this um, background as a journalist, I, I like to write it down for myself, and I started to write columns and um, smaller articles. But at one point, it was around 2004, 2005, I decided to work on my first book. Because in a book, that's the only, that's the only place where you really can really tell it all on one subject. Mm -hmm. Work out a thesis. Um, I, 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 I like to convince people by giving all the examples and show, and show people that many of the things they think they know are actually wrong. So I always try to, uh, I'm a contrarian. So when people tell me, like, it happened to me, my friends told me in the early 2000s, Willem Gold and Silver, you know, that's old fashions. We don't need that stuff anymore. You know, I'm trying to study it. And then I find out that that, that, that opinion, the general opinion is wrong. And the only, I hate to debate this in a bar or with friends or over dinner, but I love to debate this through writing books. 
So where I can put it all down, give all the examples, give all the evidence, and then I publish the book, and then I don't want to talk about it anymore, I don't want to debate it anymore, and people who are willing to study the subject, they can read the book. And I've published eight books in the last 11 years. They're available in eight languages now, two are translated into Chinese, in Mandarin. And, and that clearly, clearly shows there's a market uh, for, these, for, for this kind of approach. And my books touch on um, the world of energy. I wrote The Tesla Revolution four years ago. Um, I wrote The Permanent Oil Crisis in 2008. Um, well, telling all about the end of the uh, fossil fuel era and the start of uh, the alternative mm -hmm. energy space. Um, I wrote a book on the the end of this um, of the current financial system. It's called the Big Reset. Yes, that's the book which was published in most languages. And I think you published that at a very good time, if I remember correctly. You published that in 2007, just before the uh, financial that crash. That was that was the book previous to The Big Reset. Okay. Uh, my first book was published in 2007. That was only published in Dutch, also the dollar falls, so when the dollar collapses. Right. And that was touching up upon the same subject, that we would have a major crisis in the financial system within 10 to 15 years. And that book came out August 2007, one year before Lehman crashed. So when Lehman crashed, that book made me world famous in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it sold well over 100,000 copies. Didn't yeah, it? well, 50,000 in the Netherlands, 17 print runs, which for a small country like, like yeah. Holland quite a bit. And then I started to work on a book about the end game of our financial system uh, and it took me quite a number of years to really understand how central bankers can change this system, can reset this system. Because world's financial system is not a God-given or by nature created system, you know, it's a man-made system. And the world's financial system actually is in agreement between the major trading blocks in the world. And we have reset the monetary system in the past, uh, in 1944 with the Bretton Woods uh, Agreement. And it has been reset in 1914 when the British um, decoupled the, um, the pound sterling from, from gold mm -hmm. and, 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 and lost the, uh, the British Empire by doing that. And I'm quite sure that behind the scenes, uh, central bankers are discussing... Um, a new phase for world's monetary systems, and I know the Chinese are included in those in these talks. Um, and this this is a subject which I find very intriguing. And in the big reset, I tell all uh, about of about that topic. Well, what's really interesting about this, uh, and it's something we've spoken about a lot on the Capitalist Exploits blog, is that. So much of the success of the current monetary system comes from collaboration between the G5 countries and Japan and and everyone being on the same page, yeah. basically. And now we're seeing uh, you know, a rise of nationalism. We're seeing countries 
being far less collaborative than they have been over the last several decades. Obviously, with Donald Trump coming to power, uh, American becoming America becoming slightly more isolationist. Jeez, I can't say that word. Isolationist. Obviously, Brex uh, or Brexit. Um, <laughs> Brexit and Brex. <laughs> I'm having <laughs> a Freudian slip here uh, with Brexit. But countries are less collaborative than they've been uh, probably since World War II, uh, and people are focused much more internally than they previously had. And I wonder a lot what that's going to mean for the world's monetary system and when that collaboration breaks down, uh, you know, when we're not able to keep interest rates at close to 0%, what's going to happen there? That, that's the biggest risk. In, in the big reset, I end the book by saying we can have a monetary reset um, well-planned and well-organized and well-discussed with the major trading partners. And China, China is willing to join forces with the West and to um, work towards this new phase. And, and China controls Russia, so Russia will, will go along as well. But, but I also conclude in my book that if for one, one now unknown reason, uh, we can't agree on the next step towards a new phase for our worldwide financial system. And, um, well, a, a big conflict or even a war could break out. And, and actually, th this, this is the most serious question for me about the future. And with Trump uh, now clearly moving towards calling China our largest enemy, not Russia or... Not, not that I agree that Russia is our main, <laughs> our main enemy. That, that, that you know, the U.S. always wants to install fear. U.S. always needs an enemy uh, to keep the budgets <laughs> high in the yeah. in, in the um, military industrial complex. But now they changed the tune, and now the story is that China is the big enemy. And if you listen to Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, of course, left the White House, mm. but I think was very influential for the thinking um, of, of Donald Trump. And Steve Bannon has clearly stated in many interviews that China is our big enemy now. Well, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, this is something I, I've been endlessly fascinated with China and Asia for years, but it's something I've only started thinking about in the last two years from an economic perspective. And, you know, it's really only been a two or three hundred year period where China has not been at the center of the world. Uh, and us in the West here, it's very easy for us to think, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a planet dominated by Western democracies. But that is a historic outlier. And I think, you know, particularly in my generation, I, I anticipate over the next 50 years, we're going to, to your point, the Western world needs to make a big seat for China at the table or else there's going to be a very, very real problem. Uh, and we're not in a position anymore to keep China from having a, having a strong seat and having a say on the world stage. Yeah, um, couldn't, couldn't agree more. And actually, I'm working on a new book. Uh, I will take some time to, to write it. But it's, it's, this book will be centered around exactly this topic, that... Um, the center 
of economic power was always in the East, not in the West. And it was only a few hundred years ago that the West became stronger and stronger. And um, in China, they call this the century of shame, which started in 1850 and took until 1950. In 1950, we had the Chinese Revolution. And then the Chinese um, took their destiny in their own hands again. But the century of shame, like they call it, um, they understand it very well that, that, that they need to be strong again. And they need to rule the world in one way. Um, and and they, they always call themselves, you know, if, if we look back very, <laughs> if we go back five, six, seven hundred years, they call themselves the Middle Kingdom. So they were the center of the world. And all cultures around China, uh, they, they saw them as barbaric people, you know. They had this long history of 10,000 years with the same language, the same food, the same medical culture, the same uh, kind of organization. There was never democracy. but So China is the only culture, one could say, which survived in the last 10,000 years. And yeah. I studied China a lot because two of my books have been published in China. I was invited to come to China. And I really um, try to understand the Chinese um, uh, culture and, and vision. And I fully agree that we need to give China a big seat. They, they, they want it. They deserve it. And when we choose to confront them, and like the U.S. is now confronting them in the South China Sea, um, well, we could have major, major problems. And the current trade war and the current uh, uncertainty in, in, in financial markets and in the economy clearly show the negative impacts of such a, uh, a tension. So does this and the, the implications for the current monetary system, this has been a driver for a lot of your interest in commodities and precious metals in particular, I would assume. Yeah, because like I said at the start of this interview, I really started to study uh, the world of commodities and the world of precious metals because I was very leveraged in the late 90s and I had eight different um, mortgages on all the real estate I bought. And I tried to find a hatch when uh, well, this system of... Uh, fiat money and debts would um, would break down and this has been a leading force in my um, in, in my um, investments and actually I, I made a living out of this and I've, I've been writing books about this and still I still feel I'm contrarian I still feel that we're living pre-Lehman I still feel the same like I felt in 2006 2007 before all hell broke loose because people have forgotten what has happened in 2008 and I'm still afraid that the major crisis could hit again and could be more severe so I I try to protect my wealth um, against all bad things which which could come and I have a very simple portfolio I follow myself and I write about in my books and I talk about in my speeches I keep 25% in real estate. That's money outside the financial system, but in a highly leveraged 
market because mm -hmm. real estate is always a leveraged market in which a lot of credit is used. But 25% of my network is in real estate. 25% is in physical gold and silver. As the ultimate hedge, 25% I keep cash, some crypto. Uh, out of that, I, I have some uh, some uh, Bitcoin, um, some uh, crypto positions, and the other 25% is is in equity. While many North American investors, you know, most of their investments are in the equity markets. Yep. Yeah. You should never have more than 25% of your wealth in equity markets. And when you say equities, does that include mining stocks as well, or outside of the mining industry altogether? So my model portfolio talks about 25% in equities. I always tell my audience, you can choose whatever you like, but I want to have equities which have a strong intrinsic value, strong intrinsic backing. Yep. So I prefer commodities. I prefer many companies who have physical assets in the ground, which is the, the safest vault in the world. So I prefer companies not producing commodities now because you sell them with a very small profit. I prefer companies who, are, who have assets and who grow the assets, which are still uh, buried in, <laughs> in the ground. They're and locked away and growing. Yeah, so, yeah. And, 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 and can be sold at a later stage at higher prices. I want to talk about what you guys are doing at the Commodity Discovery Fund today. Uh, I know in the next couple months, I think it's this April, you have a small conference that you're throwing for your investors and some outsiders as well, uh, where you're bringing a lot of your featured portfolio companies to talk and to learn more about the opportunities in these companies and these stocks and what's going on in the space in general. Yeah, I, I travel a lot worldwide to visit all the conferences. So we're here at the PDEC in Toronto. I just visited mining in Daba in Cape Town. But what I missed in all these conferences, there, was, there wasn't one place which was totally dedicated on discovery investing and mm -hmm. discoveries. So we organized our own uh, discovery day. Uh, last year was the, was the start. We invited um, six companies to present in a 20-minute time frame. Uh, this year, April 12th, we'll do it again in Amsterdam. Beautiful venue, beautiful concert hall. Um, we will present eight companies working on some of the best discoveries in the world. Great Bear Resources will be there. Adriatic um, uh, Minerals will be there. Companies doing a wonderful discovery in, in Europe, in Serbia. Um, we'll have Silver Crest working on the best silver discovery. Uh, Novo Resources will come and explain why the uh, largest gold find <laughs> of the last decades is still uh, difficult to develop. Mm -hmm. So we'll have many, many stories, and I will invite listeners to come to come uh, to our show if uh, they go to our website, Commodity Discovery Fund uh, in the Netherlands. They'll they'll find information. Uh, we don't. Um, ask a high uh, entrance fee it's just to cover some cost and people are invited to come and spend a great day or weekend in Amsterdam and these are companies that you and the fund are personally invested in that um, are you going to be doing any interviews with them up yeah. on stage and yeah it, it's it, it really is a day um, designed by us in a way we would like to present our world of discovery investing I, I want to educate uh, the audience by 
telling more about what we do, uh, how, how these companies work. In Europe, it's a totally different world here f um, compared to North America. In Europe, we don't know um, listed exploration companies. We don't have any in, in mainland Europe. So we really have to educate people and also tell the companies presenting that they shouldn't do their geo talk about veins and shoots, mm -hmm. and, but they should talk more in general terms why nickel is important, why um, it's so hard to find silver. So it, it's 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 an edu educational part. Uh, it has an educational part as well. All right. Now, I want to be respectful of your time. I know it's pretty busy right now, and you and I actually have to go have a quick chat with a, with a company that I think is on the verge of making a pretty interesting discovery. Um, but before we go, is there anything you'd like to ask of our listeners, anything they should check out for Commodities Discovery Fund, or anything you'd like to leave them with in terms of what they should be thinking about in terms of managing their own portfolio and, and getting the best exposure to the mining and metal space and particular discoveries? Well, I would like to warn them because after a chat like this, you know, um, people can um, can become very ent enthusiastic to be to become a discovery investor themselves. And I almost um, would like to say, don't try this at home because mm -hmm. it's very difficult. And when you don't have very deep pockets, you you'll buy the first four companies. Uh, publishing some nice drill results and I can promise you these will be the the, <laughs> the wrong companies which will go down 80-90% afterwards so um, I think mo most important advice I can give people is first study the financial system study what's happening in th this big world out there and then study the world of uh, of money um, study the world of uh, of commodities, but be very careful by with buying all these exploration companies because they are they can be lottery tickets um, or they are lottery tickets and you can win a big prize. But most of the lottery tickets they will go down and um, well be thrown away without any value in the end. So be very careful out there. A lot of crooks around there, a lot of promoters. We haven't touched upon that. <laughs> I might do that another time. Yeah. But be very careful. Yeah, I'd like to echo that, actually, in that for most people at home uh, who don't necessarily have the technical background that's required to properly evaluate these companies or to really dig into the details, or more importantly, they're not intimately involved in the space so it's it's hard if you don't know the people behind it don't know how they're operating and the decisions they're making and what their motives actually are you know i would i would um caution people and recommend to people that they find groups that they can trust and, and whether that's uh you know well-known mining entrepreneurs like the ross Beatties of the world whether it's uh, uh putting your money in a fund like the commodities discovery fund where you know it has a full-time staff devoted to finding the best uh, opportunities, or an ETF, or an ETF, or you're you know you're purchasing a newsletter like we have at Resource Insider, where I spend all of my time talking to management teams and looking at projects. I'd say you know it's worth spending that extra bit of money to partner with the right people and to, and to 
get in with the right teams. What, what I always advise people have the same question. When you don't have very deep pockets, but just want to spend a few thousand, just buy the ETF. Uh, the GDX for the gold miners, the GDXJ for the junior gold miners. Um, you have a nice basket uh, with very low cost structure. Um, international investors are welcome in our fund. We can't uh, accept US persons and we accept uh, investments from 25,000 euros and onwards. All right, Willem, thank you very much for your time today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.